the, the New Testament. If you're not familiar with how the Bible is laid out, it's about the last uh, quarter of the Bible. Um, maybe the last third. I don't know exactly. It's in, the, it's, in the, it's in the second half. John's Gospel is one of the first sections of the New Testament. This morning, we're going to be actually near the end of John's Gospel, chapter 20. Uh, because we want to get a sense of the whole before we get into the nitty-gritty of each of its parts. And John decided to give us his purpose statement at the end. And one of the things, one of the things that's always really important when you start a study of some new kind of document, whether it's in the Bible or in, in any other sort of literature, is to know what it is you're reading. What sort of text is this? And what sort of rules should you have to follow if you want to get what the author wanted you to get out of that text? There's different rules for different genres. So, for example, you guys probably know now that there's a series of uh, what you might call fake news sites out there. Some of these are better than others. The good ones are really hilarious. They have you know, headlines and then articles spoofing on something going on in the public eye. Back in the fall, during the government shutdown, one of these sites ran a story on President Obama in which it was claimed that he decided to use his considerable disposable income to keep open a Museum of Muslim Culture in Jackson, Mississippi, so that it wouldn't be shut down over the, uh, over the, the, the loss of federal funding. Now, it's funny for a lot of reasons, right? I mean, it's, it would have been politically suicidal for him to do something like that. He never would have done that. It's hilarious, the thought of having a Museum of Muslim Culture in Jackson, Mississippi. I mean, come on, who are we kidding here? And the thought that any museum of Muslim culture would be affected by a loss of federal funding is also ridiculous. I mean, these things aren't funded by the federal government. That's, that doesn't happen. Pretty funny to us. Not so funny to one unfortunate reporter on one nameless, for our purposes, cable news morning show. Now, to this reporter, this sounded precisely like something the president would do. And by golly, it was something the American people deserve to know. <laughs> yep. Causing considerable embarrassment to herself and to her network, this reporter spotlighted the story. In the context of the real shutdown of the World War II Memorial in Washington, D.C., here's this big group of vets from Mississippi that can't go to their own memorial because of this shutdown and the president is using his money to open up the Museum of Muslim Culture in Jackson, Mississippi. What's wrong with this picture? Well, what's the moral of this story? The moral of the story is not that you shouldn't believe anything you hear on cable news. And maybe you shouldn't. But I'm not saying that. The moral of the story is getting the point requires knowing what sort of literature it is that you're reading knowing what it's aiming for, knowing how it gets what it aims for, by what rules. You have to know what kind of literature it is before you can read it responsibly and benefit from what it's trying to do. And the same principle holds true even in, the middle of, or even, even in your Bible reading because the Bible is full of lots of different sorts of literature. And each one of the sort of types of literature that you come across in the Bible is after something different and it's to be approached using different rules. So starting John, uh, a series that's going to carry us from today all the way through the end of the year, the first thing we've got to do is figure out what is this book here for? What did its author want to accomplish by it? Because that's going to shape how we interpret it. And thankfully, 
John gives us a nice, tight thesis statement that would have pleased any composition professor. He puts it at the end of his book, you know, which might have gotten him knocked a little bit on his final grade, but it's there. And it's a great way to get a bird's eye view on the whole, on what this book is here to do, and how we can expect to approach it in a way that will be responsible and profitable to us. And That's where we're going to be this morning. We want to simply understand what this book is for and who this book is for. Understanding those two things from the, the purpose statement that comes in chapter 20 is going to set us up for, a, a, I think, a more effective and fruitful time together studying this book. So I want to read it for us. Take your Bibles, please, John chapter 20, and stand with me in honor of God's Word as I read our text for this morning. This is the Word of the Lord. From John 20, verses 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. First thing to notice here about John's purpose statement, the first clue into what sort of book this is and how we should approach it, is his claim that he's chosen his material to convince readers to believe something. And did you notice this? The first sentence, he basically throws up his hands and he admits, this isn't everything I could have written. There's a lot more that Jesus did, a lot more important things that Jesus did. Not trying to be comprehensive here. So what am I trying to do? What grid did I use to decide what I was going to tell you about and what I was going to leave out? And he gives us that answer in verse 31. These things, this whole book is written so that you may believe. The clue here is that this book isn't written just to entertain or to inform, but to persuade. He makes it clear that he didn't record everything he could have recorded He's not interested in a no-rock, unturned biography. He wants to get straight to the point and tell you only what you need to know to make a decision that's going to change your life. He's aiming at your life. It's not about factoids or dinner party conversation topics. It's what you call a life-involving decision that he's after. One that if you were to agree with it, if you were to come to understand it and embrace it, would change who you are. Maybe a, a helpful comparison here is the difference between a biography of, say, a, a dead president. Think of the award-winning biography of John Adams that David McCullough wrote that got turned into a miniseries a couple years ago. And a biography like that one of, a, of an old dead president is mainly just trying to give you some information about him. Some people are just sort of inherently interested in these guys. Um, guilty. I'm the kind of nerd that's interested in these guys. And in a book that just wants to introduce you to somebody who's dead and long gone, it's probably just going to be filled with all sorts of facts. There's about any facts that you can get about this guy to give you a picture of what his life was like. And it's kind of interesting. It's even entertaining. There's a delight to it, to reading a book like this. But at the end of it, maybe you understand some things differently. You know, if it's a guy who, who is a thinker or a writer and you're introduced to some of his ideas, maybe you understand things differently. But chances are not a whole lot has changed about your life from reading that. Now compare that kind of biography to the presidential candidate autobiographies. Now, I don't even know, maybe you don't know that these come out, but pretty much any time it's an election year, about a year or two before, the candidates who think they've got a shot tend to write these autobiographies. They're shorter than, than David McCullough's John Adams because they try to get to the point, and they're only going to include the things that are going to convince you that they're worth your vote, right? And to, to read one of those books, to be persuaded by one of those books, involves you in a different way than reading about John Adams, 
being persuaded to vote for someone based on the autobiography you read is, is, is going to affect, you know, where, whether you have health care coverage, how much you pay for it. It's going to affect a whole host of things, right? It's life-involving in a way that reading a John Adams biography is not. Maybe an even better analogy here. John's book is, is, is more like that sort of campaign autobiography, but it's even more like a description of a bridge that you're about to drive across. Now, now you can study in an engineering or an architecture class what makes for a stable bridge, right? You can, I mean, I have no idea what that would include, not being an architect or engineer, but I'm assuming like lots of drawings on like chart paper and, um, you know, numbers attached to the different dimensions and what have you. You can read about a bridge and what makes for a healthy one, but that's a different thing in, in the context of a classroom than maybe reading about a bridge you're about to drive across. So that one's life-involving. That persuasion has some stakes to it. John's book is a lot more like that sort of description. He wants you to look for Jesus, look to Jesus, rather, for life. And this gets us to the next thing to notice about this purpose statement, about what this book is for. He's writing to persuade, but he's, he's writing to persuade you of something very specific this is not some belief as some sort of, uh, sort of general optimism. I think a lot of times when we use faith or belief, what, what, it's, what it means sort of in popular culture is just a sort of optimistic outlook on the world. The sense that things are going to come out okay in the end. You know, just having confidence that things are, are, are more than likely going to break your way. That isn't what he's after here. It's very specific. Notice the content of it. He writes to persuade people, these things are written that you may believe that this, that Jesus, a man that lived within a generation of this writing, that this man is the Christ. That the Christ is also the Son of God. And that if you believe in him, this Christ who is the Son of God, you can live the life you were made to live. Its content is specific. He wants confidence in his readers, in the truth of claims about who Jesus is. The claim that he is, that he is the Christ is a claim that he is the Messiah. That's the Hebrew word for it. And for those of you who aren't familiar with that concept, that's the word they use to describe this, this one God had promised throughout the writings of the Old Testament. He promised the Jews that somebody would come one day who would set them free once and for all from all the things that threatened them who would purge them from their own sins as well as from the evil powers that oppressed them. That this one they chose to call the Christ or the anointed one. Now John is saying Jesus is the Christ. He's writing to convince them that this guy is the one you've been looking for. But he's saying more than that. What would have surprised Jewish readers at the time was that he's claiming this Christ had to be the Son of God. Couldn't be just another David or another Moses couldn't be just another Gideon, a strong and powerful leader who would, who would galvanize the people to rise up against the Romans and shed their shackles. No, no this deliverer had to be the Son of God. And that's an idea that we're going to unpack in detail as we move through John. It's crucial because what he's going to claim is that the only way any of us are able to move from where we are now to the life we were made to live is if God himself comes to us to be our deliverer. That what we need is something only God could provide. And I'm tempted to start preaching the whole book here. I'm not going to do that. I'm, I'm not going to do that because we're going to spend a lot more time on it. But let me just give you the spoiler here. 
when he says that the Christ, who is also the Son of God, who that if you believe him will give you life, he's pointing to something that gets developed throughout this book, and here it is. He's pointing to the central claim of Christianity, which is that the source of all of our problems, the source of our anxieties and our unmet longings, of our restlessness and our selfishness, of our broken relationships and whatever else, that at the root of all of these problems is the fact that our relationship with the one we were made by and for has been broken. That we have alienated ourselves by rejecting the one who made us. And the claim of this book from beginning to end is that Jesus, God's own son, came to heal that broken relationship by his death. The key to us living the life we were made for is trusting the loving authority of the God who made us. And he has not allowed our rejection of his authority to end his relationship to us. He has come to us. He has pursued us in Jesus. And through him, he offers us a way. One of the more famous verses from this book, one of the ones we'll, again, get into in detail down the road, is John 14, 6, where Jesus promises that I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father. No one gets this gap bridged. No one has this fundamental relationship healed except through me. What we'll see is things like Jesus claiming that he is all that the temple had represented, promising that this temple, meaning his body, will be destroyed, but that he would rebuild it after three days, and attaching himself to that temple in saying things like, you come through me to get to the Father. He's pulling on all of this imagery from the Old Testament to say the relationship that you need healed, the place where you get peace with the God who made you is not a physical building anymore. It's me. Come to me and you'll have life. Life is one of John's main themes. Life here and now. Life eternal. And Jesus is the key to it. That's what the book is for, to convince you that if, if you want to live, if you want to live the life you were made for now, and if you want to live a life that isn't threatened by the grave, Jesus is your answer. Hold that thought. We're going to spend the rest of the year unpacking why you can believe that's true. Now, what I want to do for the rest of our time today is shift a little bit from what this book is for to who this book is for, because this is going to affect how we interpret it. Who this book is for. The first audience, the first group of people that this book is for uh, was, were first century Jews. Now, the reason that I want to highlight that here is that it's going to affect a lot of the details that we see in John. And if we don't know who it was meant for, then a lot of the stuff that we come across may seem a little bit bizarre, difficult to understand. Because it assumes, John assumes in the stories that he tells and the images that he uses and the quotes that he gives, he assumes that the people who are reading this book have a kind of familiarity in their background with the Jewish worldview, system of practice, understanding of the world. And for us to understand some of the stuff we're going to come across, we're going to have to be very sensitive to this fact. We're going to have to know what it is we're looking at. Now, there's a lot of evidence scattered throughout the book that this is his original audience Uh, the main argument comes from the way this sentence reads. Here in in verse 31, it's written, these things are written, he says, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. 
There's a lot of clues here that that he's aiming at first century Jews who don't yet believe in Jesus. He writes, that you may believe, implying that they don't yet believe in the way that they should. And he just says that you may believe Jesus is the Christ. There's no explanation of who the Christ is. He expects that they know that the Christ part is familiar to them. What they need help with is understanding that Jesus is the one they were waiting for. They know who the Christ is. They know what it represents. They need to know that it's Jesus. Details that John uses throughout also make best sense for us if it's aimed at Jewish readers. His case rests on... Here, we'll say some more about this in the future, but, but one, one sort of category to get into your mind that'll help you understand the whole of John is that the material in here is pretty well divided between signs and sayings. Between signs and sayings. There are several stories very carefully selected from the life of Jesus that John presents to us as signs that he is the Christ. Some of these signs, some of these things Jesus does are weighed down with all sorts of symbolic significance from the Old Testament. And then the sayings passages, passages where Jesus is teaching about something, are also often connected to Old Testament passages trying to explain them, unpack them, and show how he's the fulfillment of them. Other things, though, are scattered throughout the book. Some are explicit. When when Jesus compares himself and his death on the cross to the serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness so that those who look at him could be healed from their wounds. He compares himself to the manna that God gave the children of Israel to eat when they were wandering around in the wilderness. There's a story about the children of Israel trying to survive on their way from Egypt into the promised land, and they don't have any food in this they're out in the middle of nowhere and there's no food to be had and God literally rains down bread on them. Jesus takes that imagery and applies it to himself in a passage that was read for us earlier this morning. Jesus is the bread that, unlike the manna your fathers ate in the wilderness, the manna they had to have every day, the manna that couldn't keep them from dying, you eat me, you feast on me, and you will know satisfaction and you will know life. Other times it's more subtle, like when Jesus predicts the temple's going to be destroyed and rebuilt and he's referring to his own body. The fact that so much of the action, so much of what happens in this book is happening alongside of Jewish feasts. There's details like this all through the book. We're just going to try to have an eye for them. The The bottom line here this morning to help you get ready for this is to know that John's purpose is to convince these people who were already looking for the Messiah that Jesus was the one that they had been waiting for. That's the first group of people this book is for. That, this is the first group of people the book is for, makes it challenging for the next groups of people that this book is for to get what they should out of this book. There's a big gap that we've got to bridge between the culture of first century Judaism in the Roman world and our culture here today. Some of the things we're going to read about are going to sound very foreign to us. But I want to encourage you to give this book the benefit of the doubt and see, and if you do, I think you'll see that it speaks with a timeless relevance despite all that separates us from its world. And, and giving it the benefit of the doubt, there is a second group of people that this book is for. This book is for you if you're not a believer in Jesus. It speaks to you today if you're not a believer in Jesus. Now, granted, you're likely to need a different sort of argument than what would resonate with a first century Jewish person. 
We're going to have a lot of work to do to bridge the cultural gap and to make sense of what John says. And nothing that John says is going to offer you sort of proof of Jesus' claims that you might be looking for on this side of Isaac Newton. But, but, I want to encourage you to broaden your minds to consider other ways of knowing that there are more personal, more relational ways of coming to know the truth of something than, than what you might submit to a microscope or to some sort of statistical analysis. I remember in graduate school, uh, one class, we were learning about the slavery system in the U.S. And I remember one of the most celebrated books that we read. I don't remember the name of it now. I should have found that, sorry, because you guys want to do some follow-up research. What I remember about it is that it was, a, it was an economic study of where slavery fit into the southern economy. And that it, it was a breakthrough because it was one of the first times anyone had used sort of robust statistical methods, I guess of sociologists or whatever, to do this kind of history. And so the book was full of charts and graphs and numbers and what have you. And you could learn a lot of facts about slavery as it was practiced in the United States, in the southern, in the southern half of the United States in the 19th century. You could come to a certain kind of knowledge and you could, you could see that as a certain kind of proof that things were the way they were. But then I also remember, I vividly remember, the first time that I read Frederick Douglass's autobiography. Maybe some of you guys have read that in high school or college. One of the most famous first-person narratives of what slavery was like. Well, there's a different kind of knowledge that is gained from that kind of account. There was no charts in Frederick Douglass's autobiography. No stats. No, no, nothing anywhere, anywhere close to anything that you might call scientific in the way that he makes his case. But I really believe that I came to a certain kind of knowledge of the truth of what things were like then by entering into his world, by giving him the benefit of the doubt as an interpreter for me, as a, as a sort of tour guide through that society, and by trying to put his lenses on. And, and if you're interested in knowing whether or not Jesus is who Christians claim that he is, I think the way that you're going to get there is by entering a book like John on its terms, suspending your disbelief, giving it the benefit of the doubt, imagining how it would be if it were true, and taking the claims that he makes and the events that are relayed here, putting them on as a set of glasses and seeing what things look like. What's going to require from you as as one who doesn't believe in Jesus is a certain level of empathy that's always required of this sort of text. You've got to enter its world on its terms and try to imagine. And if you do that, If you do that, friends, I think you'll find what countless thousands have found in in encountering John over the centuries, that it has an amazing ability to unpack us, that it is timeless in its insight into us, that its hope and its message are timelessly relevant to the needs we all feel that we have, that we might We might even see some needs we didn't recognize we had because we enter into this world. That's what I want to appeal to you to do for this study. Experience what Jesus says and does empathetically and see what the world looks like from those lenses and try to evaluate Christianity that way. There's a book that could be helpful for you in this. Uh, I believe we still got a copy of it back here on our resource table It's a book by a pastor in New York City called uh, Tim Keller. The book is called Encounters with Jesus. 
And it's written to just unpack different ways that people, especially in John, not just in John, but especially in John, uh, interact with Jesus, the conversations that they have, how, what faith looks like in them, how they come to it. Um, and, and it could be a nice sort of tour guide for you through our study to read alongside of it. Uh, if there's not a copy back there, let me know. I'd be happy to get one for you. Now, here's the final thing. This book is for first century Jews. It's also for anyone who needs to be convinced that Jesus is who he claims to be, which means it's for you, even today, if you don't believe in Jesus. But, but thirdly, finally, this book is for you if you do believe in Jesus today. Now, there's still work to be done, to bridge the cultural gap. There's work to be done to glean from a book that's written to evangelize first century Jews when you already believe and don't need evangelizing, when, when perhaps you aren't Jewish, and when you live in the 21st century, not the first century. But some of the stuff I've already said applies. And the testimony of countless thousands over the centuries are that this book speaks with an uncanny, timeless relevance. I think you'll find that to be true. And, it, and at the very least, as this book appeals to unbelievers, trying to convince them that Jesus is the one who can deliver them, it's going to be useful to you as a believer for help in knowing how to relate to people in your life who don't believe. I would encourage you, if you're a believer in Jesus today, to see this study as a time for you to sort of renew your desire to be giving your life to evangelism, to renew your commitment to looking very carefully and intentionally at who God has put in your life that doesn't know Jesus and how you can be more intentional about talking to them and walking them through who he is and helping them to encounter, encounter Jesus for themselves. I think John's gospel will help you with that. It's a fundamental calling for all believers and this could be a great chance for you to bring them to our church, for example, because we're going to be seeing Jesus firsthand for the next year. There's never been a better time to, to bring them along and see what they think. But there's more to what we can gain here than that. Here's the thing. We, we believers need John's case for Christ as, for Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God who can give us life. We need it now and we always will because though we may have the hope of heaven by faith, however weak, we aren't experiencing, none of us, not one of you, we aren't experiencing the full joy and the rest that's supposed to be ours now. In one of the most interesting encounters that Jesus has throughout this book, a group of his listeners come to him after his teaching and they ask him a question. This is in John chapter 6, verse 28. They say, What must we do to do the works that God requires? Basically what they're asking is, Tell us what God wants from us. We'll do it. Then God will give us what we want. It's a nice little economic exchange that they have in mind. They assume that God wants something they can give them. They can give him. Jesus' response to them is startling. And his response to them is the key to getting what you need from this book as a believer in Jesus. Jesus responds to them that the work of God is to believe the one that he sent. What does God want from you? From your life? What does he require? He requires that you believe the one that he sent. Now, there is a sense in which, as a Christian, faith is something you have or you don't have. 
That's one way that the New Testament talks about faith as a sort of conversion or to use John's language from, one, from chapter 3 in John as a new birth, a, li- a new life that the Spirit gives. It's a gift of God's Spirit that changes what we see and makes us new. This is the faith that's once for all. It gives us a stake in heaven because we have it. But there's another sense in which faith is an ongoing and daily battle. There's a sense in which, in which faith is something we never have in the way that we need to have it. It's a battle to believe that Jesus is who he claims to be, that the promises are true, that the promises are for us, that there's more satisfaction to be found in Jesus than in all the other places that we turn. And John's gospel is meant to convince you, to convince me, to convince all of us who believe in Jesus once and to convince us each and every day that Jesus and only Jesus can deliver us. And your soul, believer, friend, follower of Jesus, who is struggling to hold on to faith until he returns, your soul is going to feast on the proofs that John offers us that Christ can deliver all those who turn to him. So friends, when we're afraid or anxious about so much that we want in this life but can't control and can't protect. We could, and maybe sometimes we do, respond to our fears by sort of beating ourselves over the head. We should know better. We should know that God God is trustworthy, that he's already given us so much and that he'll be there for us. We should just work harder to push that fear out of our out of our minds. But how many of us know exactly we know how we know how that works, right? And it does that it doesn't work. You just can't talk yourself out of fear. We don't need to be told that you shouldn't fear. That's just going to gin up more effort on your part, try to make you work, try to make you earn the deliverance that you want, and it's probably just going to leave you more discouraged than you were to start out with. Now, when we're afraid, as all of us are in one way or another, when we know fear, what we need to hear is that Jesus is the good shepherd who gave his life for his sheep. That he is the shepherd who, unlike the hired hand, won't run when the wolf comes for his own. That he is the shepherd who delivers his sheep to his father and from his father's hand no one can snatch them away. You need to know that, friends. You need to be reminded of that because connecting with the truth about Jesus is the only thing that's going to drive it away. Not more willpower, not more shame. Your fear will only go away as you continue to believe more deeply that Jesus is the one who can protect you. When we're discontent, how many of us are feeling that right now, right? There's a season of promises. All the gifts that you can get, they're going to change your life. January is a season of discontent, isn't it? And how many of you, like me, have fought your discontent with shame and more willpower and lost that battle over and over again. You can't just will yourself into more happiness with what God has given you. What we need is not somebody to stand up here and say, you should be content. Look at where you live. You have more at your disposal than anyone in human history has ever had. You should be ashamed. We don't need that. What we need is for somebody to remind us that Jesus is the living water, 
that he gives life to those who drink from him and that those who come to him for water will never thirst again. We need to be reminded that he is the bread of life, that eating him we will never die, that we can taste of him and be satisfied. We need to know that there is no sense, John 6 tells us, laboring for food that perishes when he will give us the food that will give us eternal life. We need to be pointed there, friends. If we believe in Jesus for a week or for 30 years, for 60 years, what we need is to be told that he can satisfy us in the midst of our failed satisfaction in the things of this world. When we're spiritually lifeless, there is no disciplined reading program that's going to fix that problem. They can help. They aren't going to fix it. And we all know how much willpower we have used to try to make ourselves feel more in our spiritual lives. But Jesus himself tells us in John chapter 15 that he is the vine. That we are just the branches. That if the branches want to stay connected, if they want life, they've got to abide in him. And that means looking to him, listening to him, savoring what it is that he does and says for us. You want spiritual life? You've got to go to John. You've got to look at Christ and abide in him. When we fear death, our own death or the death of those that we love, we need to know that not that, not that getting what we want out of this life is going to make the pill go down easier. And we need to know that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. We need to read chapter 11, hear him tell that to the sisters of one who had just died. See him give life to Lazarus. See him himself come from the grave three days after he was laid in it. And see in him that there is nothing, not even death, that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. We need Jesus, friends. That's what we need. And whether, you've been a Christ, whether you're not a Christian now, been a Christian for a short time, been a Christian for a long time, wherever you find yourself on the, on the spectrum, you need to be convinced again. You need to be convinced every day that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing in Him, you may have life in His name. That's our goal for this series. Join me, friends, now as we pray that God will bless it. Father, we, we've said this already. We'll say it again. We cannot get what we need out of this book unless you give it to us. We can understand it. We can come to a certain knowledge of it. But the knowledge we want, the knowledge that drives out fear, the knowledge that gives us satisfaction, the knowledge that gives us hope beyond the grave is a kind of knowledge that your spirit must give us by your word. And so here we are. Asking, Father, that by your word you would speak to us. That you would shape us by it as individuals and as a community. So that we're more happy, more holy, and more at peace in Jesus than we are right now. Your spirit blows like the wind where it wishes. We can't control it. All we can do is ask you to blow it through us so that we see and believe. We pray for this in the name of Jesus. Amen.